So I'll say, for example, right now, Mexico is the new China. Its wages are cheaper. Its quality control is better. And this is why the Chinese are investing in Mexico. That's a bold statement. And still today, a lot of people are like, that's not right. That can't be true. And yet you see the Chinese investing hugely into Mexican infrastructure. So if I believe that now, and it's not done yet, and I see Mexico is going to end up with a much stronger physical and digital infrastructure, then I have to say that's a bigger bet in 20 years than it is today. And so today that already sounds like a bold bet. But to say that Mexico and the the US-Mexico nexus will be a better performing part of the world economy in 20 or 30 years than China, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a bet. But I'm willing to make that bet, especially because Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. So you have a super interesting background in economics, helping Bush, working in government, and now drones. And I want to jump into drones first. What's the deal? You went from something that seemed like you were the top of the top, at which you're still pretty involved, to jumping to drones. What are you interested in today and why? Well, so I'm an economist, and I like to express that in a bunch of different ways. You know, I write books about the world economy. I try to help shape public policy by advising governments. That's how I ended up in the White House working for George W. Bush. And uh, after the financial crisis, I was so confident that we were going to have a really serious recovery. And I thought, well, instead of just talking about it, I have really ought to be part of building the economy. So I started talking to a bunch of my clients about my, my views. I was particularly focused on robotics and automation being the next big thing. And one of my clients said, I agree, and I have an idea. And we started to work together to create a, uh, I hate calling them drones, because drones are fundamentally either toys or things that kill people. Uh, what we make are robotics that fly. They're aerial robotics. We kind of make like a Land Rover. It's something for industrial use that basically replaces a helicopter and does a lot more than that as well. And we just saw a gap in the market. We saw also that it was going to be totally dominated by the Chinese and that there were going to be data integrity issues as a result. And we thought there's an opening here. And I think we've been right. Why were you so big on robotics and drones? Well, robotics generally, uh, I, it's perfectly obvious to me that we're just, uh, technology is leading us into an era where we're going to have ever more automation and ever more capacity to undertake the dirty, the dangerous, the difficult tasks in, that can only be done by something remotely where you don't want a human involved. And that's where I saw the opportunity. How do we convey the fact that we don't want the human involved in a lot of these circumstances? We were essentially elected a president because we want to go back to the coal mines. We want to go backwards. How, how do we deal with progress, 
automation, jobs, job security. I know you've brought up universal basic incentives. And I'm curious to hear, hear a little bit more about that. Okay, well, let's start with the, what is our presumption? Many people presume that automation of robotics equals unemployment. I say, wait a minute, we got the first real robotic automated tool in about 1805 when a guy named Jacquard introduced a textile loom that was automated. It was a robotic tool. And we've had ever more automation robotics since that time through the Industrial Revolution to what we have today. And what is the end result? Record level employment in virtually every part of the world economy from China to the United States, record level employment. So the idea that automation robotics equals unemployment doesn't make any sense, first of all. Second of all, what it does confirm is that robotics and automation augment humans. They don't replace them, but they do require that we all change. And let's face it, people don't like change. So they go, oh, I don't like robotics because that means I have to change. And I, I look at all the surveys that show, you know, 10% of the workforce will have to change because of automation and robotics or 60%. And I think they're all wrong. 100% of all of us will have to change as a result of automation and robotics. But that doesn't mean we'll be unemployed. It means we'll be doing very different jobs than we did before. And that's where the dirty, dangerous doll comes in. So for example, uh, right now, when uh, offshore uh, oil and gas platforms have trouble, one of the things they do is put guys over the side in ropes. They literally hang them in rope works. And there are two kinds. One, you can stay in for a while, but the other, which you do if you're in a hurry, you can last literally nine minutes because in the 10th minute, you are dead. Literally, they kill. So they're for emergencies. They're for basically assessing is the rust on the side of the platform. Now, I see no reason we should lose a human life to this question of is there rust on the side of the platform? And if you can get an aerial robotic tool to do that for you, why wouldn't you? And have that person who is a pretty highly trained person even get onto an off or platform, do something that requires human ingenuity. And that's a really key point. Artificial intelligence is very powerful stuff, but it cannot replace human ingenuity. AI is always done in conjunction with HI. And that's a concept people need to get their head around, I think. Is that because the AI we're building right now is purely productive with almost no creative capacity? Yeah, it is. It's because most of the uh, AI is really about learning from past repetitive tasks and extrapolating that into the future. Now, there is what they call high AI, which is where you have true creative learning process. Uh, there's a big argument in the scientific community how close or far we are from that being part of our daily lives. But in the meantime, certainly human ingenuity is able to connect the dots in a way that we can't program a machine to. If we, if we try to give a machine open access, they learn all kinds of stuff, but not necessarily what solves the problem. I mean, if you recall a while back, I'm just trying to remember who it was. Someone put an artificial intelligence to work and they fed it uh, what was on Twitter. And it started swearing, you know, within like two hours and becoming incredibly racist. And so did it learn? Yes. Did it learn what you hoped it would learn? No. Yeah, it was, it was Microsoft. That's what happens when you yeah, ex yeah, expose, expose innocence to, to humanity. I, I have a follow-up follow for that. So I've heard it argued both ways, and I can see it happening both ways in terms of automation and jobs. I think the major thing that most technologists miss when they say that this is just like every other time is the fact that 
we're living at more or less the carrying capacity of our planet as it is. In the past, we were able to offset the economic growth by just producing more. We destroy more trees. We blow up more mountains. We do more and more and more so that we can grow the GDP almost artificially because all of the all of the negative consequences weren't weighed into prices. I don't think we can do that this time. I don't think we have to do that this time. That is the wonder of what technology is delivering is the capacity to generate more abundance, more ubiquity. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's uh, a guy at the MIT Media Lab called Caleb Harper, who has created a technology that permits you to grow any kind of produce from spinach to lettuce to rutabaga, whatever you want, in a container, as in like a container ship container. So you have no sunlight, you own, uh, sorry, no electricity, you just use sunlight, it's solar powered, no, virtually no water, definitely no soil, virtually no kind of fertilizer or chemical. And he's able to grow it at something between two and eight times faster than in the natural environment and with higher nutrition and with better flavor. Now that is a game changer and, and profoundly alters the whole question of outgrowing the resources of the planet. It's cheap, it's easy, it can be easily replicated. It is a function of technology plus some artificial intelligence. It's heavily dependent on using RFID chips uh, to track the progress of seeds along the course of the entire lifetime. And of course, this is the fastest growing area of use of RFID chips is seeds to person and the consumption chain in between. So this idea that we're going to run out of assets is actually being countered by what technology is actually delivering, which is the capacity to generate abundance. I would like to agree with you, but I like to play devil's advocate as well. So I, I can definitely see the abundance in certain natural resources, but there are others that are purely, at least today, technologically impossible to, to fabricate. So there are certain things we're just not able to produce. It's different farming versus building a, building a mountain. Or, I mean, at this point, we're, we're getting close to growing wood. That's uh, yes. artificial wood, artificial skin, etc. But uh, what areas are you most excited about? Oh, well, I think it's just amazing how technology is allowing us to solve problems that were previously seemingly intractable. Um, and what I find interesting is people don't quite understand how this is happening. So uh, before answering the question, maybe I can diverge a little bit and say, what's happening is we're now in a position to gather data in a ubiquitous kind of way. So as humans, we're giving off data all the time. We give it off uh, through our cell phones, our mobile devices, even if they're not on, it's capturing how you walk and what level of a building that you're on and this, you know, things that, that reveal the condition of your health. And that you combine that information with all sorts of other sources to create a kind of series of data points that forms almost like a holographic space, consider like a holographic sphere of data points. And like a crystal ball, it literally lets you see reality with far greater precision and clarity than you could ever see reality itself with your own eyes. And this is the place where we can begin to do things like solve cancer, because you have so many data points that permit you to begin to see patterns that were previously not accessible to human beings. And I think that we, the fact that we don't really even understand this new holographic data sphere, this kind of radical transparency environment, and how to either conjure forth answers from it or to understand how it reveals ourselves, whether we are companies or governments or individuals, how we look through that data sphere because the radical transparency is so high. And so if you don't even understand that, how are you going to understand that this is the place where you start to solve epic problems like cancer? You can 
can also, by the way, create some epic problems because this is a place where I think we profoundly change the balance of power between states and citizens, companies and customers. I, I think political consequences of entering this new data-driven environment are enormous. But nonetheless, you know, it's like a car. You know, a car can be used for good purposes and transport people safely from A to B, and it can kill people. It's exactly the same here. There's a good and there's a bad, and you've got to manage both sides. There's a good and a bad, but is there a slippery slope? Uh, the slippery slope is that you can't turn the technology back. So the, the old option of being a Luddite and saying, I'm going to smash the weaving loom because I don't like it, what it represents, it doesn't work. It won't go away. The, the innovation persists. It continues. And if anything, it gains speed. So the real question is, what's our capacity to adjust? What do you think our capacity is to adjust? And how do you see the power dynamic playing out between governments, corporations, and then cities? I think the single most important thing is imagination. And this sounds really strange because people say, oh, no, no, management is not about imagination. It's about, you know, logic and execution. And so I've just written a book called The Leadership Lab. And one of the arguments I make is that 20th century leaders were highly analytical. Uh, in fact, all of us, whether we're leaders or not, very analytical, logical, quantitative, mathematical approach to problem solving. But in the 21st century, this is not working very well. And this is one reason why we keep being blindsided by new events, Brexit, Trump, new competitors that pop out of nowhere. And it's because the answers are not purely analytical. They're also what I call parenthetical. Parenthetical is about the ability to look across. It's about the narrative. It's about the qualitative assessment. It's about understanding the zeitgeist. So in other words, one is about math and the other is about mood. And this is where imagination starts to play a huge part. I love the quote from um, Mark Twain, who says, the eyes cannot see clearly if the imagination is out of focus. And your imagination is out of focus if you've already concluded that robotics equals unemployment, for example. So you're not prepared to use your imagination to see how all that could be deployed in a way to generate entirely new endeavors, sectors of the economy that no one ever even heard of before. And so that, I think, is why imagination is now important. It also comes into the second part of your question, which is the relationship between states and citizens and companies and customers. So for example, the Cambridge Analytica issue. Well, Cambridge Analytica only had Facebook likes. And from that, they were able to compile a psychometric profile on roughly 81 million people, roughly 5,000 data points on each one of those 81 million. And that was arguably enough to create an environment where some of those people were sold a political position. Now, if I add in all the data off my mobile device and my Fitbit and the Internet of Things devices that are in the world I physically occupy, all telling you much more about me than just my Facebook likes ever would. Well, I think that gives you such an insight that I am helpless against your effort to sell to me. And it doesn't matter if it's a political position or a refrigerator. I, I am going to be vulnerable uh, to whatever you're trying to sell me. Hey, Matt here. I wanted to take a quick time out. This is a really interesting insight that Pippa has that not enough people are thinking about and not enough of us are speaking about. We've seen democracies hacked by Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, and we see the same thing happening to consumers' wallet books. What happens in the world of tomorrow where there is increasingly more data from IoT sensors, from your 
phone from your house, your smart home, your Alexa device, etc. Can you become a, a slave to the device, a slave to the corporation? Pippa's worried about this, and I think a lot of people that are thinking well about this are worried as well. Now let's jump back to Pippa. I just wanted to highlight the thinking outside the box thinking that she's doing here, which is why she's one of the best of the best. So I've argued that in this new world, we, we have to think differently. So we used to have, for example, insider trading laws. So if you worked in a company and you had an insider view, you were not allowed to transact in the shares. In this new environment, we may need insider trading laws, meaning if you have so much insight into a person and their emotional condition that you shouldn't be permitted to sell to them without some constraints because these people are helpless in the face of that advertised. So it's an interesting kind of new concept of, of how to think about the regulatory environment in this changed balance of power. How do you think about it as an economist? Are you more of a free market economist or more socialism or something else entirely? Uh, so, you know, I look at all the models that are available. I conclude that the capitalist so-called free market economy is the one that delivers the best outcomes, which is not to say they're always the ideal outcomes. I personally think capitalism has not been delivering as well as it could because we've we've done things to undermine it to make it not what capitalism ought to be. Like, for example, when we did the bank bailouts during the financial crisis, it violated one of the most basic tenets of capitalism, which is if you make a really bad bet, you ought to fail. You know, they say that, you know, capitalism without failure is like Catholicism without sin. And so when the financial market institutions made a very bad series of bets and cost society enormously and required a bigger bailout than a wartime budget, normally, those institutions or the people running them would fail. But instead, they basically got a blank check. They got quite the opposite. They got a massive reward for having taken huge bets. And similarly, people who are at the bottom, let's say people who don't have a college education, they don't have any connections or privilege, you know, capitalism normally finds ways of ferreting out talent and, and bringing it into the system. But because of the way we've set uh, capitalism up in recent history, those doors are closed, right? Companies and, and universities only recruit people who have a certain level of performance, gone to certain kinds of schools, have connections, or even if they can manage to get there, they're often laden with so much debt that they can't really function because the job doesn't pay enough to cover the debt. So what I'm saying is we've made mistakes in our management capitalism, which makes it look like capitalism is not delivering. And my answer is capitalism could be structured much better so that it would deliver better outcomes. But what I can't see is how uh, a more socialist approach approach works better than this. And I find particularly a lot of young people, people are in their teens, their 20s, uh, even their 30s, they're very attracted to the notion I described earlier of a, a world that's driven by data and data analysis. Because their view is we could get a few smart people, they could assess all this data, we could distribute the wealth and the assets and the jobs much more sensibly now that we have all this information. And I say yes, and we have a name for that, that is called communism. And they say, no, 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 I'm not talking about communism. I'm talking about a much more efficient way to distribute the wealth and the assets and the opportunities in society. And I say, yeah, that is what you are describing. And given a choice between a group of people, even if they're well-armed with data, who decide that allocation versus a market that determines it based on the individual actions of the players, I still lean with the first. Is the problem our economic system or our political system, specifically a broken democracy? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that it's the politics is definitely interfering in a wide variety of ways. You know, the business of making promises to people that economically can't be kept. For example, the, the promises that, you know, what your pension fund will deliver, what social security or some equivalent in other countries, like I, I live in the UK where we have the National Health Service. All of these things were political promises and they were made at a time when they, they sort of made sense. For example, you know, the pension system and social security was based on the assumption that people would retire at 60 and they'd be dead by the time they were 65. Literally, they would not survive more than about five years. The average age at the time of the construction of social security of death was 63. And so mathematically, that added up. Today, we live in a world where people are living a hundred year life. Although I say that with caution, some people are living a hundred year life. People with, with um, assets and skills and education are living a hundred year life. People without are living a shorter life, which is a big political problem all by itself. But if you're going to live a much longer life, you can't retire at 60 and 65 and think that the system is financed in such a way to support you till you're 92, especially when the vast majority of the medical costs you'll incur in your life happen in the last three to five years of life. So we're all weighting the system improperly. And so somebody needs to say, hey, this is not working so much anymore, but nobody in politics is brave enough to do it. Instead, people are taking it into their own hands. And this is one reason we see record number of people over the age of 55 re-entering the workforce and fixing it by going back to work, which frankly, is not a bad solution because if you're going to live till you're 100 and let's face it most people are healthier and better off these days so frankly you'd be bored out of your mind doing nothing between you know say 55 and 100 so this is a not a bad solution but it's not the whole solution well not only that but when you stop learning you start dying it, it totally. rapidly accelerates totally so, which is why lifetime education is now essential it is now essential and if you're paying 100 grand each time you do it you're doing it the wrong way i, I let's, agree let's ask a a controversial economics equation. So you sure. just said you just said the last three to five years of life are typically where the vast majority of healthcare costs for an individual and IE for a nation come in. Do do we need to think about or ethically should we think about a cutoff point where people no longer receive healthcare and use use that to float them longer for retirement benefits? Yeah, that was um, one of the sort of implicit tenets of Obamacare. And I think it is one of the issues that the public in the U.S. had with Obamacare is that, remember he made a speech and he said, you know, my mom was in her 90s and needed a hip replacement. And, you know, frankly, that doesn't make sense because she'll never recover from the hip replacement. And so we should create a system where, let's say, a few doctors or some kind of committee basically says there's a cutoff point. And there was a really big sort of uh, ethical and emotional reaction to that notion. And I do think that there is something to be said for that's that's we got to really think through who should have the power to say no we should equally think through is it right that the only people who get a shot at having the hip replacement in their 90s are the ones with financial assets is that fair maybe that's not fair either and so this question of how to allocate uh, resources becomes really crucial and I come back to this notion of abundance and ubiquity maybe what needs to happen is that we shift the whole healthcare system away from where it is today, which is a total focus on repairing something that's already happened. And instead, we create healthcare systems that are focused on prevention or um, healthcare in advance of problems occurring. And I see huge progress being made on that front. I'll give you an example. There's a guy called Steve 
Papermaster, who's got a company called NanoVision. And the idea there is to take nano-sized chips, so very, very microscopic chips that would go into the human body and observe it at the level of DNA, molecules, cells, and organs. And so when you get cancer, normally proteins build up in advance. And normally you don't see it, you don't catch it because you only go to the doctor maybe once a year and that snapshot doesn't capture any of that. So now you're going to have a continuous video, not a snapshot, and you will get continuously alerted. And when the system sees that you're starting to build up proteins, they're going to tell you to do something about it and avert a bad outcome. What is the cost of that? Gosh, it's a lot less than what we do now. You know, so what I'm saying is, you know, the, the implicit assumption of a cutoff is that there isn't enough to go around and we have to cut people off from access to healthcare. I'm saying technology is going to create a world where we'll be able to solve medical problems before they even appear. And so we won't need to have committees saying you're now cut off from medical resources. I would agree, but I think we've already solved a lot of those problems. Eat healthy and exercise, which most Americans don't do because they're they're not incentive. So that would uh, that would trump your nanotech solution any day, in my opinion. But Yeah, well, I'm with you completely. I'm just saying in addition, to that. But by the way, that's a really interesting sort of socioeconomic issue too, and one that I've written about, which is people who are well off are definitely eating better and more healthily and with medical outcomes in mind, and their healthcare is improving. But poor are being touched by the return of inflation. And the return of inflation, albeit at a very low level, is already making it too expensive, for example, to buy certain kinds of proteins. And the poor, typically, if they're going to eat protein, they may eat, let's say, beef, right? They're going to have a barbecue, whereas the the wealthy and sophisticated might go tofu these days, right? Vegan kinds of proteins, very different health outcomes, arguably. So what's happening is poor are getting pushed into cheaper calories and inevitably cheaper calories are emptier calories. And hence you start to see an explosion of obesity amongst the poor, even as their quality is falling. And I think this is creating a, a society with a massive division that will have real consequences. We cannot ignore this. We have to understand what we need to do to help people at this lower income, lower education end of the spectrum manage their health care in a better way. I think that's part of it. Although I would push back, I would say beef is much healthier than soy, but we don't need to get into health. Aspects. Yeah, exactly. We can but, have a bigger unit. Yeah, that, that's always a long discussion. But in terms of in terms of even larger changes, we're rapidly approaching human genetic engineering self-enhancement. That's going to be inherently expensive and will rapidly accelerate the difference between haves and half-nots, in my opinion. How do you see this shaping out? Yeah, I hear you completely. Uh, I think the longer run, more and more people will have access to those capabilities. But initially, it will be the domain of those who can afford it, for sure. And I think it goes further than just genetic editing. I think it's also important to appreciate, there's a guy called Nicholas Negroponte, who's quite a legend, who founded the MIT Media Lab. And he's made some incredibly bold predictions over the years, and inevitably, they turn out to be true. And he's talked about uh, our ability to uh, engage biochemistry and to be able to swallow a pill in not many years that will allow you to immediately know all the works of Shakespeare or suddenly speak German or Mandarin, that literally you'll be able to ingest knowledge. And that is really a game changer for dividing society. Or frankly, using things like brain prosthetics. Uh, Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink. Its whole focus is using brain prosthetics 
to enhance human capability of uh, doing repetitive tasks, of thinking more vibrantly. And already we have devices on the open market that allows you to do a repetitive task that takes a normal human maybe seven minutes before they lose their concentration, that now you'll be able to do it for as much as four hours. So all of these things are going to split humanity into the haves and the haves nots. And yes, I think this is an issue that requires our, our urgent attention because it's a question of political philosophy. It's a question of what is the, what is the nature of the society we want to have and what is the social contract? Is it that if you're rich, you can have that stuff and that's the end of it? Or is it that we choose who gets access? Or is it that we create a random lottery? I mean, how is it that we're going to divvy up these results in the short term? I think in the longer term, they will be more easily available to everybody. But the, the time in between is critical. The time in between is critical. And if capitalism's proven anything, it's that technology leads to exponential results, but typically inequally distributed in a Pareto type principle uh, proportion which as we go further can lead to larger disparity. I hear you. And, and let's face it, what we also know is that our political leaders, our legislatures, the people we would normally depend upon to tell us what are the new rules, the new ethics for operating in this environment, these are the people who called Mark Zuckerberg up to talk about Facebook and indicated by their questions that they don't even understand how email works, let alone anything more sophisticated like what we're talking about. So so this is why we need people, uh, private citizens, to start coming forward and engaging in the civil society civic dialogue about what is the right way to proceed. And I do think there's a blossoming of private citizens entering this foray and trying to create a conversation about how we're going to handle all this. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. How do we address the fact that our governmental leaders are pretty much worthless when it comes to most fields? Yeah, well, this is one reason I wrote this recent book of mine called The Leadership Lab. It was really designed to help bring people who were trained in 20th century thinking into the 21st century, including explaining to them what's already real. You don't. This isn't sci-fi in the future. This is now. So for example, uh, I don't know if you know that episode of Black Mirror, which has uh, a scoring system where everybody scores everybody else 
and depends on what your score is because you can't rent a car if your score falls too low. Well, that scoring system is real in China now. It's called the social credit system and they use it to manage the society. And already, if you jaywalk across the street, before you've even crossed the street, you have a text message alerting you to the fine and they're not already taking the fine out of your bank account, but I don't imagine it'll be long before the money's already withdrawn from your bank account and your name is thrown up on a huge OLED to you know, shame you and get you to not do it anymore. So this is not, you know, Netflix, sci-fi, you know, some future scenario. No, this is right now today. And the way I try to help politicians understand this is to talk about a company called SenseTime. SenseTime is the most valuable startup in the world today. Last time I looked, it was worth $5 billion US, but that was like two weeks ago. It's probably six by now. SenseTime is an artificial intelligence company that focuses on facial recognition. And it allows you to recognize one person out of a crowd of 10,000. It allows you to recognize the state of mind of every individual in that crowd of 10,000. But equally, when a chief executive or a politician, a member of the Senate, the president, when they go on television, you can train sense time on the screen and it will identify the microfacial movements that indicate when they are lying. And it can set the algorithms to either short the stock or alert the world that they should vote for this person. That's not hypothetical. That's real. It's right now. And there's a company that does this and there's several others right behind it. So, I trying to bring these guys up to speed in my own, you know, small way by writing a book for them. At the same time, though, in London, they use video cameras to identify individuals that have committed crimes. And there's a very large percentage of the time they misidentify individuals. Yes, that's true. But it's becoming less and less. And I think the quality of facial recognition is rising so fast that we can expect, you know, within, a, I'd say within a decade, the accuracy to be a lot higher. More important, even if the accuracy is low, the fact is governments are deploying this technology. I mean, already they're using facial recognition in, I think, 30 airports in the United States because the people who travel by plane and travel internationally, it's relatively small crowd compared to the general population. And so the database is smaller and the chance of accuracy is higher. But even that, you're right, the the numbers are showing something like 85% accuracy. So what happens if you get caught up as a person misidentified? How do you say, I'm sorry, but that isn't me? And they say, oh, when the machine says it is you, you say, no, it isn't. I have a friend, actually. I know a guy who, who was, um, whose passport was stolen. And so this guy's name gets listed with Interpol. So he gets arrested at a, a European airport for being the head of a drug gang, when in fact, he's the guy whose passport was stolen. And it took him months to sort that out. So this is another good example of, okay, we've got some, you know, there's some aspects of this that are rolling that can give you some good outcomes. There's some that gives you really bad outcomes too. How do we manage both? And it's going to be a very interesting conversation not enough people are having. Yeah, because not enough people are clued up about technology. I find a lot of leaders, whether they're chief executives or politicians, community leaders, even religious leaders, because by definition, they tend to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They tend to be men. Uh, they, They will typically say, I don't do technology. And my answer to that is if you don't do technology, it's going to do you. you. There's no choice here. You have to understand technology or you're going to be out. And I think that's why, again, in, in what I've been writing, it's a bit of a knife to the throat of the current generation of leaders to get with it. And if you don't, don't be surprised to be out. And it's an invitation to the next generation to hurry up and bring your knowledge and your understanding 
because we need it. We need it now. Trump definitely won at Twitter and he showed that if you're willing to express opinions, you can possibly get some traction. So I would like to see some new faces, ideally ones that aren't already corrupted into politics, getting into the game. Yeah, I hear you. Actually, he's also a good example of um, what I was, what I'm talking about when I say analytical versus parenthetical. You know, he appeals to emotion and that definitely gets you better results. It doesn't matter whether you're doing sales or you're doing politics or you're telling stories in film or, or in the arts. Bottom line is human beings are emotional creatures. And so if we keep trying to be entirely analytical, we don't appeal to emotion, we can't be surprised we don't get so much traction. And Trump understands this is an emotional process. Now, is he appealing to the emotions that we would like? Maybe not. So we want to learn the difference between appealing positively to emotions versus appealing through a fear-based uh, approach. There are lots of different ways, but definitely emotional intelligence in leadership is now much more important than before. I think it would have been better if we had more of it before, but we didn't. But I think we definitely have to have more of it now. What we've basically always had is Democrats promising hope, not necessarily delivering and Republicans shaking fear. And it's kind of been the, the schism that's happened in the US. It's mainly due to the uh, majority win um, scenario in the, in the voting system. So I want to I want to get into the economics a little bit, though. So you anticipated the financial crisis, Brexit, Trump, and the slowdown in China. That's a pretty good scorecard. I look at some of these rankings. You're you're pretty good. What are you thinking about these days? Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. How did I see it? I have always been really skeptical about uh, data and, and analysis in the sense that data tells you about the past and you can't extrapolate it into the future. Uh, you know, in financial markets, we always say past returns are no indication of future performance. Well, it's the same thing with any kind of data that you've gathered. So it has its uses. I'm not saying it's useless, but I like to also do the common sense thing, which is open my eyes and look for visual signals that I can just see that are not yet in the data points. So what do I see? Uh, I see extraordinary innovation. I Every single person I talk to, it doesn't matter what age, they are. They are all saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm starting a new business or I'm thinking about starting a new business. People are being much more creative about how they're putting their time and energy to work. And their capacity to deliver is much higher than before. I'll give you an example. I was at, a, at an event the other day for female entrepreneurs. And this is one of the fastest growing categories of employment, fastest growing sources of employment. And female uh, entrepreneurs, particularly over the age of 40, are amongst the most successful entrepreneurs. So I wanted to hear what are these women up to? And one of them was a fashion blogger. She doesn't know anything about technology. She's not into AI, but she discovered a platform. A, tele, a, a smartphone-based platform that allows fashion bloggers to actually sell the skirt or the dress that they're writing about or the trousers or whatever it is and get paid a little piece, a percentage for having been the promoter of that item. And she now has women all over the world, some men, very, relatively fewer men, but they're making as much as half a million bucks a year doing what they love, which is writing about fashion. This is very exciting. This is about the democratization of computational capability 
ability. And I'm, that's a signal that I see that's really uh, very encouraging. I see others as well. Like uh, here's another, again, it sounds crazy, but a fashion example. I find that what people wear definitely reflects how they're feeling. You know, the old story that if women are wearing mini skirts, they're optimistic. And if they're wearing floor length skirts, they're pessimistic. And this tells you about whether a recession is coming. I think it's so interesting that we see this trend for jagged, jagged hemlines. In other words, it's both. People are hedging their bets. They're thinking, ah, it could go either way. That's one thing. Another is right now the most popular fabrics in fashion are entirely transparent. Either completely clear PVC, most popular item in fashion stores have been totally see-through jeans. Sounds uncomfortable to me, hard to wear, but you know what? That's been the uber popular thing. Or people wearing sheer fabrics like, to me, that's so obvious. People are literally crying for transparency to the point that they are wearing clothes that reflect that desire for transparency. So I think we're going to get more transparency. And this whole data sphere, this holographic data sphere of data points that we're gathering, it is a, a place of radical transparency. And I think there'll be many good things that come from that. I think it's an interesting metaphor, but I would push back and say it's much more that the Tinder generation. Let's have some fun, open relationships. Let's get busy. Yeah. Well, there's that too, by the way. It's also about the, we used to be we the people, now we're kind of me the people. There's this you know, focus on the self, not as much interest in the community. And that is also definitely, definitely a trend and one that we have to really think about. How do we knit these folks into the system? And the answer is if the system isn't serving them, then they're not going to be part of it. So what do we have to do to create a system that is more inclusive, more uh, accepting of diversity, diversity of people, diversity of thinking? That's my big, my big thing is talking about diversity of thinking. And you can have diversity of people, and that's a huge contributing factor to diversity of thinking, but you can still have a hugely diverse room of people say Trump will never win. And now we don't have diversity of thinking. And I think this is what makes things more robust. It makes you more agile, more able to maneuver. So yeah, recognizing the selfish downside is part of that. How do you think about and how do you think we should deal with uh, separatism that's been happening globally between countries, between cultures? I think separatism is a symptom of populism and populism is a symptom of people either being left out or feeling genuinely adverse consequences. So I'd put at the core the debt problem. The debt problem is basically that most countries from the US to China have so much debt that they absolutely can't pay it off. There's no means of paying it off. The society doesn't generate enough GDP to pay it off. So you have limited options as to how to deal with that. You could just say, I'll never pay you back. That's unlikely in the industrialized world. You could say, I'll pay you back a little later. That's what the Greeks have done. Not so easy for the US, China unlikely as well. You can say, well, let's have austerity, but that's a huge vote loser. Or you can introduce inflation. That's another option. That's the one that everybody's chosen, though they totally deny it when you suggest this. But let's face it, the purpose of the bailouts, taking interest rates to all-time record lows, flooding the money, the money into the system, all of it's designed to create higher asset prices and or inflation, right? They're kind of the same thing. So now we have a little inflation. Some people feel that sooner and harder than others. Because after all, the, the 
inflation as a data point is just an average. That's just an easy way to think about it. But some people will feel higher rent and higher grocery bills a lot earlier than others. Some people will never feel it at all. They won't even have any awareness that rents are rising or the cost of groceries is going up. You can see, for example, millennials uh, feel inflation much faster because they spend more money on the things that are rising faster, like the cost of education, like rent, because they don't own their own homes. So as they feel that pain, they ask a single question. If, if this is happening, if you can't meet my needs, why are you in charge? This is the core question that underpins all of populism. And if you take it a step further, well, I don't like the fact that you're in charge and I don't believe that you can deliver a better outcome. I would rather have my own politics, my own state, my own location. I would like to create my own space. That's what underpins separatism. And that's why we see it globally. You know, the British think that Brexit, their version of separatism is very local and specific to them, but they don't understand it's everywhere. The state of California has had, you know, this proposal to split the state into three different parts. Whether it happens is a different question, but what's interesting is watching the number of signatures rise. The state of Texas petitioned for Texas to separate from the union. Again, the number of signatures keeps going up. I don't think they'll actually do it, but the desire to say, I don't want power centralized somewhere away from me anymore. I want it closer to me. And by the way, this also underpinned the populism that got Donald Trump elected to office because he basically said, I'm going to burn down Washington. All the power has been centralized there and push it back to you at the state level. And that's one of the reasons that we found many of the Democrat uh, poli Democratic politicians across the country at the state and local level were voting with him on a number of things because they rather like having power sent back to the state and local level as well. So this is definitely, they're all intertwined, I think. To me, the debt, populism, and separatism, you can't pick them apart. They're all part of one problem, one, one phenomena. They are, but they're three separate things driving the flywheel faster. Where does it go from here? Well, this is an excellent question. I think I am optimistic about some things, pessimistic about others. I'm optimistic about the capacity of the United States to keep growing faster than it was before. I see the U.S. being highly competitive. By the way, that is not a function of Donald Trump. Uh, it was happening before he came to office. Uh, the Chinese were looking to put up manufacturing centers already in the U.S., but it is also true that having uh, a federal government that delivers lower taxes and um, less regulatory red tape is definitely seen as a benefit by business and investors. So I see the U.S. actually continuing to do well. The economy continue to do well, which is a very out-of-the-market view. Most economists are waiting for the financial markets to absolutely collapse and have a bigger catastrophe than we had in the financial crisis. So that's a very contrarian opinion. But at the same time, I also think that the economy is not delivering enough to the poor, the less privileged, and we have to find a way of opening the door of opportunity to a broader set of people. Some things are happening that are good in that respect. I see more and more companies saying, I'm not going to hire college students, exclusively college students and MBAs anymore. I'm going to hire 18-year-olds and build the skill sets that we need. It's a kind of return to the 1950s IBM model. And I think that's a very good thing. I'm, I'm all for also apprenticeships, 
putting vocational training back in the school system so that, you know, not everybody was meant to be a white collar professional worker. Some people are incredibly gifted working with engines. And I mean, look at the business I'm in. You know, I manufacture commercial drones, aerial robotics, and the people I need most are the ones that are very familiar with, you know, welding and electronics and playing around with engines. I, I don't need someone with a PhD. I need someone who's got these practical capabilities. So, you know, just the question is, is that happening fast enough to keep the society stable? That is an open question. That is very much an open question, especially considering the the rapid acceleration of technology. Well, I was going to say, and again, I think the technology can be hugely democratizing and end up empowering people who don't have the traditional education, who don't have the traditional skill sets, but it can also keep them out. It's both simultaneously. What areas are you most excited about outside of AI? Oh, gosh. I'm really just excited about the capacity for technology to deliver, for example, permanent, continuous, lifetime learning. Uh, I love the way, you know, they can now t- they take an iPad and embed it in a brick wall in some incredibly remote part of India. And within hours, the kids are on communications networks, you know, emailing back and forth in languages they don't speak. Now, they may be emailing back and forth or sending messages back and forth that don't have any meaning. But the point is their capacity to learn without instruction is extraordinary. And I think that we totally underestimate the ability of human beings to learn. I think we're highly prejudiced in the way we think. For example, people say to me, well, Pippa, you know, if, if let's say robotics replace the Pakistani laborer who is currently lifting bags of rice, what's going to happen to that poor person? They won't have a job to do. And I say, look, you don't know what is the capacity of that person. That may be the next Einstein, but they've never had access to the education. So what we need to do is find ways to give them access because the greatest underutilized economic asset that we have is human ingenuity. And we do not devote enough resources to these people who could be incredibly gifted, but we don't know because we just never checked. And that's not just true for some remote parts of India. It's your own community. How many of us know somebody who is just incredibly bright, but happened to have really bad life economic circumstances, and somehow they've ended up doing work that really isn't commensurate with their capability. We all know people like that. So I think that the exciting thing is we're going to be able to more easily identify and more easily empower these folks who've been left behind. I I just wish we were more focused on that piece because if we do that, we're going to lift GDP. We're going to diminish a lot of the political infighting. We're going to solve a lot of problems. So I'm all over under-recognized, under-utilized human capability. Is GDP part of the problem, having that as a scorecard, as opposed to something that is more metrics-driven based off of what the world is like today? Yeah, I do think that's right. I think um, also capitalism generally uh, relying on economic performance as if having a record high-level stock market equates to a society that's better off, which is where we are today. And we all know, well, some are better off, but not everybody. And so, yeah, winning financially is not the answer for everyone. Some people are meant to be artists. Some people are meant to do other things. And so I think we should put more emphasis on the 
success stories that are not financial, the success stories that have meaning for people's lives, but not necessarily resulting in a paycheck. And we should value that higher. Instead, who do we value? You know, we, we, we love watching, you know, television shows that are about the, the brutal business of becoming the top entrepreneur. Well, not everybody is going to be a top entrepreneur. And you can't run a society making if you're not the financially successful person, you're a loser. That's not true. Why don't we spend more time celebrating the success of the artists and the storytellers, the writers, the you know people who are doing other things that are equally or more valuable to the health of the society, but uh, somehow we, we don't recognize them as much. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard problem that I think will definitely need to be solved as, in my opinion, we'll have much less need for human labor in the future. Yeah, I, I, I can see that you're right, but I hope then what happens is we get more artists, we get more innovators, we get more new sectors of the economy being created because people have the mental space to be creative. And, and that's why you know people talk about the universal basic income. And I've said we ought to talk about a universal basic incentive because I actually don't think that there won't be work to do. I think there will be work to do and you won't have to pay people to not work. But I do think if you're going to reward them, you should create incentives for them to learn. And we should have a society where permanent lifetime learning is incentivized. You do your learning and you get free health care. Uh, well, free health care, that's a whole different story. <laughs> I'm hoping that we get healthier and we don't need this much health care. That makes two of us. So 50, 50 years from now, will we have more countries or less on earth? And by roughly what percentage? Yeah, this is such a fascinating question because also it implies that countries as a phenomenon. Let's say nation states. Yeah, yeah, that they continue to exist. I'm actually smack in the middle of rereading a, a really quite amazing book uh, called Taz, T-A-Z-Z, by Hakim Bey. And it's about temporary autonomous zones where you should be able to enter a space where you're not being electronically tracked, where the state can't see what you're doing, where it's kind of like a modern version of a pirate utopia. And I think people are creating everything from temporary autonomous zones to new kinds of legal constructs where local communities take over the running of things like utilities and, and political processes stored much more at a local level, not so much at the nation state level. It's so funny. I studied political philosophy when I was in college and everybody's like, no, you will never ever get a very silly political philosophy. What are you going to do with that? And now everything that is a political philosophy, all this is the right construct, a nation state, a temporary autonomous zone, a pirate utopia, a local community that has more power than I don't know, but we're trying to figure all that out and that political philosophy. I think the big problem with transitioning to a nation state model, which would almost inevitably be better, is that right now governments have the sole monopoly on the use of force and government's role, the role of anything is essentially survival, pass itself on and if possible, become larger, which we've seen with governments. So how do you have separate or peaceful nation states leaving countries is uh, certainly up for debate. Yeah, it surely is. And and it's true. Um, I think it was Milton Friedman who is not so permanent as a temporary government plus something that's temporary, it becomes a permanent thing. And so the inclination of government is to expand and look at how hard it is to cut back on any Thing or to reorient priorities. So difficult. God, we can solve every problem in the world if we just spent less money on the military. What was, speaking of, what was it like working with Bush? You know, it was fascinating and it was actually a really 
privileged experience from for me to have had. During that time, we had seven of the nine largest bankruptcies in American history in one year, right? It was the Enron period. And we had 9-11. And so it was a hell of a time to be in the Oval Office. And you know, the impression of George Bush was that he was stupid and clueless and privileged. And that was not the experience of the man that I had. I found him to be uh, incredibly, um, incredibly focused. He found every typo I ever put in a memo to him and said, why the hell is this typo in my memo? You are not reading this carefully enough. And he was right. So I found him to be very much on his game, but his style was kind of off shucks. It's awful complicated. I don't really understand. And why? Partly because he's the only president we've had that had worked in the Oval Office before occupying it because of his dad. And he saw how people won't speak truth to power because they are so overwhelmed by it. So he tried to create an environment that was much more kind of down to earth so that people would come in and say what they thought. And I personally experienced this when I had a chief executive of a major company come in to see him and he saw me first. He said, the president's policies are terrible and the secretary of treasury sucks and you're going to fire him. And I said, great, we're going to go over and we're going to tell the president because he needs to hear what you think. And he's telling me all this all the way until we get to the Oval Office. He steps one foot into that room and he goes, oh, Mr. President, I am so delighted to meet you. And I'm like, hey, oi, what happened to you? Come back to me. George Bush was very aware of that. And he tried to keep that at bay by bringing it down to a kind of very salt of the earth approach. But the blowback was he looked like an idiot. Well, fast forward, you know, he always said history will judge. History will judge the decisions that we've made here. And he was right. But here we are not that many years later. And the world has gone from he's a total idiot to, you know what, could you bring that guy back? Because he looks quite reasonable now in comparison with what we have today. So my experience of him was was like that. I think it is always interesting. The great leaders know how to make the ones around them look great. Well, yeah, I think that is right. And I think that he was very aware that the office of the president is not about one man. It is an office. And he was hugely respectful of that office and very deferential to the capacity of the team to do the hard work and to bring him decisions that were sound so that he could make choices and do it as rapidly as required given the circumstances. Now, it's interesting. We kind of have two categories of presidents. You know, my dad served four presidents, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And I worked for Ronald Reagan and George W., although I've always been very bipartisan in my personal approach. And I've briefed a lot of Democrat leaders over the years too. And the two extremes are you have your academic intellectual types who have very big inboxes and very small outboxes. That's kind of Jimmy Carter. Um, I would argue President Obama was in this sort of more academic intellectual. And then the other side is your CEO executive decision maker type. That's Ronald Reagan. That's George W. And interestingly, in between the two, very rare to find someone who's in between, but, but um, President Clinton was definitely right in between those two. The ones who are the executive CEO types are, they have very small inboxes and very big outboxes. What's interesting is they all make mistakes because by definition, when you work in the White House, you never have enough time or information to make any decision comfortably. So definitely you're going to be making mistakes. But the proportion of mistakes for these two very different styles is probably about the same. So you can't really say one's better than the other. They're just different. They're just totally different. And that's the nature 
future of dynamic systems. I have two last questions for you. The first sure. one, the first one is let's get a bold prediction. Something 25 years, 30 years out. What will should we be expecting that people haven't even considered yet? You know, I'm in the business of making bold pr- predictions and I go way out on a limb a lot of the time to do this. So I'll say for example, right now Mexico is the new China. Its wages are cheaper, its quality control is better, and this is why the Chinese are investing in Mexico. That's a bold statement. And still today, a lot of people are like, that's not right. That can't be true. And yet you see the Chinese investing hugely into Mexican infrastructure. So if I believe that now, and it's not done yet, and I see Mexico is going to end up with a much stronger physical and digital infrastructure, then I have to say that's a bigger bet in 20 years than it is today. And so today that already sounds like a bold bet. But to say that Mexico and the the US-Mexico nexus will be a better performance part of the world economy in 20 or 30 years than China, that's a hell of a that's a hell of a bet. But I'm willing to make that bet, especially because I'm increasingly worried about China because of the social credit system that penalizes people for doing things that the state doesn't like. The problem is that that kills innovation. I'm kind of with Frank Zappa, who said, uh, you can't get progress without deviation from the norm. You you have to deviate from the norm if you're going to get innovation. And the whole social credit system is designed to to quash that deviation from the norm. So then how do you get innovation? So that's a pretty big thing to say, because right now, people believe China is the future and the US is up the creek. And I'm arguing the exact opposite. I would probably take you up on that bet, because Mexico and the U.S. do not seem to be getting any closer. Well, I think actually they are in real terms, but in politics, it looks like they're not. But if you look at the integration and the knitting together of the two economies, it's incredible. So for example, I go down to Texas, which is the fastest growing part of the U.S. economy, which is juxtaposed with the fastest growing emerging market on the planet today. And I asked the the Southern Texan business people, what do you think? And they go, listen, the president can build the wall, but we're going to use a really nifty piece of technology called an airplane and we're going to Mexico and we are definitely building and, and involved in that economy because it is so dynamic. You know, this is reality. So we've got to be careful not to get so caught up in the headlines. You know, you, it's easy to say Trump is building a wall with Mexico, therefore sell the whole Mexico story. That's not what the Chinese are doing. They're saying build the wall all you like. People are still going to fly in here if it's competitive and we're going to invest in the future of this country in a million different ways. And And that's their bet. I'm kind of with the Chinese on that one. That's an interesting perspective and super helpful. Thanks. I have one last thing for you now. If you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, something else entirely, what would it be and why? Imagination and optimism are essential for moving into this new technology-driven world. If you have a negative view and you believe that robotics and automation are going to replace you and there's nothing you can do about it, you're going to miss all the opportunities to engage. You're going to miss the democratization of technology that's going to put into a person's hand more computational capability than we needed to get a man on the moon. And if I said, listen, I want to use my cell phone, my mobile device to put a man on the moon, and technically I can do that, people would go, that's insane. But the fact is, we already did it. 
So the lack of imagination and optimism will blind you to what is right in front of you. And that would be a great tragedy. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. I like yeah, it. That's it. That's it. I like it. Thanks so much for coming today. I'm probably going to say it wrong again. Pippa. 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 <laughs> I am terrible with names and very sorry about that. Where is the best place for people to learn a little bit more about you and check out this awesome new book I've been hearing about? Oh, thanks. Uh, I, I'm very active on Twitter and particular under at Dr. Pippa M. By the way, I would have put Pippa M because nobody can pronounce Malmgren except Swedish people. But when you put Pippa M, you get Pippa Middleton, who's the sister of the future queen of England and pictures of her rear end. So I thought, okay, got to put the doctor in front. So it's Dr. Pippa M. And people call me Dr. Pippa all the time because they just can't pronounce Malmgren. But anyway, social media, I'm pretty active there and I'm always very delighted to engage, talk about all the kinds of questions we've addressed today. Thank you so much. And my new book is called The Leadership Lab, Understanding Leadership in the 21st Century. It's on Amazon and it's already a bestseller. And thanks so much for coming today, Pippa. If you guys have enjoyed this, be sure to leave a review on iTunes, fringe.fm slash iTunes. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Until next time, cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.